what can we do when when um, sort of the world is sort of saying like you're not meant to be playing ice hockey, yeah. but there's got to be a way that we can we can kind of create a different story, a different narrative. <laughs> You're listening to Don't Repeat This, the show where we talk about the stuff you're not supposed to bring up at the dinner table. I'm Nate, and for today's episode, I want to share the first part of a conversation I had with some of my friends a few years ago entitled The Future is Female, in which we discussed the role of women in traditionally male-dominated or male-run industries. The friends who joined me were Kelly Prodojevich, a nurse and theologian, Reverend Ann Rolosky, the senior pastor at First Congregational Church of Montclair, New Jersey. Dee Gonzalez, a former football player and state government official, and Shelley Picard, then a professional hockey player who is currently the deputy commissioner of the National Women's Hockey League. I hope you enjoy. So why don't we go ahead and introduce ourselves with our name, um, your religious or spiritual background or affiliation, if you have one. If not, feel free to share that as well. Um, what it is that you do, since that will end up being relevant to tonight's conversation, and um, what you're drinking tonight. Um, I'll go ahead and get us started. Um, I'm Nate, as I mentioned earlier, and my um, religious background is a little intense. I grew up fundamentalist Baptist, um, which I and a lot of other people would call a cult. Um, And then uh, on to non-denominational evangelical, um, which... The I guess the most rebellious thing about what we were doing there was that it was rock music in church. Um, <laughs> and uh, I ended up uh, doing full-time ministry in a non-denominational evangelical church, one of those post-grunge-style churches um, where, you know, everybody's a hipster, everybody's wearing ripped jeans and flannels, and, you know, um, and the music is a little too loud for everybody to be comfortable. Um, and then after... Some time there, uh, I went through kind of my deconstruction phase, um, rejected a lot of the Christian faith that I grew up with. Um, I think that was happening slowly over time, but it really kind of um, hit at that point. Um, And then now, uh, after doing some more exploration and studying, um, I'm kind of finding my way back to Christianity in a way. Although it's more of... um, I would say I'm more of like a Jesus loyalist, quote unquote, um, with a healthy helping of Zen Buddhism. Um, my theology now lies uh, in a lot of process um, theology and liberation theology is, is a big um, point of study and, and fulfillment for me now. So, um, yeah. Oh, and tonight I'm drinking uh, Blue Point Toasted Lager, which is brewed out on Long Island and it's pretty delicious. My name is Kelly, and I am a registered nurse at a healthcare center here in New Jersey. Um, also, just by the way, I have a Master's of Divinity from Drew University and call myself a theologian at large. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Methodist, and tonight I'm drinking Yards Pink. Hi, I'm Anne. I am Senior Minister at First Congregational Church in Montclair, New Jersey, here just right around the corner. Um, I was raised Roman Catholic, and... Uh, found myself, still find myself really kind of surprised to be doing what is I'm doing. I felt a call to ministry, oh, I don't know, 15 or so years ago. It took a long time for me to actually act on that. Um, 
what I loved about my Catholic upbringing, the mystery, the, the ritual, uh, the sense of the sacred, as well as the community, are things that I carry with me, uh, even as I uh, lead a church that is mainline Protestant, United Church of Christ. Theologically speaking, I really like to resist a lot of labels. I think they're uh, too limiting, um, like language is too limiting. But um, I would say, you know, I'm, 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 I'm pretty smitten with Jesus. I think we can say that. Um, but also really understand sort of uh, God as a language, as a bigger picture, and something that we can all speak. I love, Kelly, your theologian at large, because I think really— uh, we all look through a lens of what we think the really real is, and uh, that's God. So we're all kind of theologians at heart. But I definitely echo Nate's process um, and liberation bent. Uh, and tonight I am drinking uh, Suntory Japanese whiskey. So mm. thank you, Nate. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I'm Diana. I also go by D, and I work in higher education policy. And my... Um, trajectory with my faith uh, started with Roman Catholicism as well. Uh, got through a, a few of those sacraments and uh, made it all the way to confirmation. And then I think I, that's when uh, a bit of a divergence and I um, started to question things and uh, everything that I had learned and uh, kind of, I think a lot like you, Nate, I started to kind of, um, well, I had my little break from, from religion as well, my little hiatus sabbatical. <laughs> and then I think in that questioning, um, I actually had an interesting experience where um, in high school, um, just looking through a peach, uh, a microscope into a Petri dish of um, looking at cell and animal, uh, uh, sorry, plant and animal cells, um, had this weird phenomenal experience where I just was so uh, touched and enamored with like this creation, I guess the thought of like this plant cell being so beautiful and so perfect. I was like, okay, maybe this wasn't happenstance <laughs> and maybe this wasn't, um, you know, just, you know, a big bang <laughs> or maybe if it was, it was orchestrated or with a special artistry if you will, but uh, it kind of started reflection and, and challenging everything that I was taught and to sort of think for myself and question. So that in within that questioning is how I kind of started to read for my own and learn on my own versus uh, just kind of soaking in what I was given. And that's how I, uh, you know, came to Christianity yeah. in a very, um, you know, by choice, and which owning that choice, I think, was very powerful. Yeah. Um, but even today, I'm kind of challenging um, the status quo and everything that I've taught. So um, within that inquiry, I would say I consider myself a progressive, a feminist, um, as much as I, you know, love God and, um, and the Holy Trinity, Jesus and the Holy Ghost, and, uh, and still learning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Oh, and I am drinking um, a Pinot Noir tonight, so it's not brewed, but it goes well with theology. Mm, it does. <laughs> Mine is quite biblical. It is. <laughs> the first miracle. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. 
Hi, I'm Michelle, or but I go by Shelly. I play for the Metropolitan Riveters, which is a professional hockey team in the National Women's Hockey League, NWHL for short. Um, and I also teach at a charter school in Newark. Uh, I do not have a religious affiliation. Um, and tonight I am drinking River Horse uh, Summer Blonde Ale, which is brewed in New Jersey. Awesome. Right. Oh, shout out to the Riveters because they won the freaking <laughs> Isabel Cup this year. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank so you. congrats. We, we all got to touch the, the <laughs> famous <laughs> cup, less of the trophy right, cup. Right. <laughs> That's a religious experience for yeah. some of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So good. All right. So um, just, I guess to kind of kick things off, um, what was it that drew you to your, uh, to your career choice? Let's start with Shelly. I grew up playing ice hockey my entire life. And um, the... For women, uh, you play. You can play in college, and uh, after that, it's basically playing with the national team or the Olympic team, or that's it. And so, um, as I was nearing the end of my college career, the National Women's Hockey League uh, got started. So that was my senior year; it was its first year, and so I was um, so excited because that meant I had another opportunity to keep playing. And um, throughout my college career, I also found out that I enjoyed working with kids and kind of wanted to give teaching a, a shot. Um, and so being in New Jersey, playing with the Riveters, uh, allowed me to pursue both dreams. And so that's what I'm doing now. Awesome. Cool. D. Uh, so I actually started my career as a teacher too, and I taught preschool and kindergarten and I fell in love with working with, um, little lives mm -hmm. <laughs> and got to be a clown every day for work, which is pretty rad. And, uh, I think that kind of led me um, to, well, I, I guess I saw um, issues that occur outside of the classroom, if you will, and I felt a little uh, frustrated in my limitations um, as an instructor within the classroom. Um, as powerful as a role it, as it was, it's kind of what started to draw me towards policy and, and being able to influence change at a macro level. And how do I do that? And fast forward through many, many years, and um, uh, I, I started to do graduate research and um, study inequity and access to education. So that's where I started to become really enamored with how can I come up with a solution or a suggestion to a really serious problem mm -hmm. that intersects with race, with poverty, with gender, identity, with sex, with um, just where you happen to live and where you're born into. And I'm sure working in Newark, you, you know what I mean? And just being here in New Jersey in, in such a diverse, one of the most diverse areas in the country. Um, so now in my role, kind of working with higher education policy, kind of um, how do we give more people um, access to this mm -hmm. quote-unquote public good, yeah. <laughs> which is very private. You know, it's, yeah. it, uh, you know, the cost um, to go to college and get this credentials so you can get a better job um, and have more earning power. So where I got into my role is very windy path, yeah. but um, I'm here now. And side note, um, I also was an athlete. And uh, I played uh, for the IWFL, um, for uh, that's the Independent Women's Football League, and I played for the New York Sharks as a, a receiver and linebacker. 
and then uh, I also worked in ministry too, and uh, so it kind of have a good, well-rounded experience. <laughs> yeah, with, for with, sure. So the nerd alert and the job yeah. <laughs> experience. Definitely. That's funny. That's funny. All right, Reverend Dan. Well, there are still days when I wake up and I, I can't believe I do what I do. Um, I was raised Roman Catholic, as I mentioned in my in my background, and so that, uh, to a large degree, sort of uh, cuts off a lot of careers in in, in ministry for women. Um, but as I was growing up, I really was in love with my faith. I was in love with the liturgy and the mystery and the community and the stories, and and uh, I felt very drawn as a as a young girl to. To do what was offered to me with my gender, which was to become a nun, and I imagined myself truly uh, being able to go to those places of, of sort of great human hardship and heartache and being able to bring some kind of comfort and change and all of those kinds of things. Um, I had a very romanticized view, I think, of women in religious life when I was a little kid. Um, and then I, um, I discovered boys, you know, around the age of 14, <laughs> and that pretty much put the kibosh on the nun dream. Um, and, and so I, I you know, I, I was always drawn, though to sort of the, the the deep human questions that are explored in faith. And so when I went to college, I majored in English and philosophy, again, sort of wanting to really get underneath the human condition uh, through literature and through deep thought. Uh, I went 16 years to Catholic school, so it was really wow. indoctrinated in there. Uh, went to, um, including college, went to a Jesuit university here in the New York area. And uh, it was there that uh, those darn Jesuits, they really taught me how to question, how to think critically, and I kind of questioned myself right out of my Catholicism, um, much to the chagrin and shock of my family. And, and uh, But I just, I, I, I was having a hard time sort of reconciling what I had come to know of the Jesus and the Gospels with kind of how I saw faith-like being, life being lived, especially institutionally. So um, I sort of stepped away from the Catholic Church altogether, but I always was serving in some capacity. I worked for a variety of nonprofits with juvenile justices with juveniles in the justice system for a while, teaching AIDS education work and a lot of things I was always still wanting to try and serve. Um, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, I um, thought about social work. I thought about um, psychology. I was a young mom at the time, and I was at home with my kids. And when I started thinking about what I'm going to do once they're a little bit more independent, those are the two things I thought about. But it was never, ever kind of the end of the story for me. I was always thinking in terms of underneath that. And every time I peeled a layer about human need and the human condition and how we can meet it, I couldn't stop at either psychology or 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 social work, I, I kept going deeper. And for me, that was faith. Mm. And so I felt myself shockingly drawn to seminary, um, still expecting to sort of keep it a little bit intellectual. Uh, I thought about being a professor. That was what I initially thought I would do. I would teach theology. Um, but at some point, it kind of dropped that, you know, 15 inches from my head to my heart. And I, I knew that I was sort of drawn um, to give more than just kind of my brain to this, to give my heart to this as well. Um, so I was at Drew Theological School, and uh, I decided to go for ordination and become an ordained uh, pastor. And uh, I serve now as a senior minister in the same church I was an intern in 15, 14 years ago. So they can't get rid of me, <laughs> uh, which I'm really happy about, and I hope, hope they are too. But uh, for me, um, it was sort of that... 
experience of of God that is constantly around us, even if we can't name it as that, that I couldn't let go of. And so that's kind of what drew me into ministry. Yeah. Amazing. All right, Kelly. Um, You know, I was a young girl and I remember it was the 1970s and the neighbor up the street, he got, it was winter and it was snowing and he got a new snowmobile. And so all of the kids lined up to have a turn. And finally, I was next in line for my turn to go on the snowmobile. But he took the younger boy behind me. So I was such a good girl. I waited in line. And I knew that I would get my turn when he came back, that surely he had simply skipped over me. And if I was good and didn't complain, I would get my turn. But um, my turn was never to come. And when I said, why can't I have a ride? The It was a... <laughs> noise that the man made the neighbor man that this was absolutely a ridiculous request i'm not taking girls he said and um it was sometime after that i would say that um when other children in the 70s it was very popular to say what to a boy are you going to become president and when i would say well i'd like to be the first woman president that i would get that same response that same (laughs) are you kidding me the ridiculousness of what you are saying, if not outright laughter. And so it was sometime as I got older, I said lawyer, and I got the same response. Um, I didn't say anything for a long time after that. Um, And at some point, I must have said nurse, and that was acceptable. And so I did become a nurse. No one recognized me walking across town to go to church, how many times I'd read my Bible, that I was memorizing Bible verses and studying the different... um, translations and comparing them in my room by myself when I was but what 13 and um, I honored my sense of call in my 40s when I went back to seminary Mm. to truly do the study that I was called to do Um, and now that is part of my ministry moving forward and it's it's interesting so um I was talking to um Vicky one of our um brew theologians here in Jersey and um we we were chatting, kind of rehashing what was going on last night in the in the conversations, and she was like, "There was this one woman I can't remember her name. Um, she had this story about a snowmobile, <laughs> oh. and I would like the as soon as you mentioned snowmobile, I'm like." Oh, perfect. I don't have to like try to bring up the story. I literally was like grabbing my chest and my hair as you're telling the story. I. So the reason actually I ended up getting into football was I was five years old and in my township that shall remain nameless in the state of New Jersey. (laughs) This protection program. (laughs) Um, My mom took me to uh, peewee football tryouts and I told my mom I want to play and like an amazing mom that supports her daughter in whatever all her endeavors um took me and then the coach said sorry but girls can't play and it was something so powerful about that statement that was in i internalized and my five-year-old little self soul brain heart is like can't (laughs) <laughs> and and maybe that's where like my oppositional disorder like was born <laughs> and it's like what do you mean i can't mm. i and and i think that's where that 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 rage and that you know but belief in myself and in my ability and in and believing 
I mean, and it takes, I think, a lot of courage to be, you know, um, wait in line. And, and you even gave the benefit of doubt to this neighbor, right? <laughs> <laughs> this buffoon was, was like, you wanted to believe the best in people. And at, at such a young age, us women, we, we learned that, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, the, the world or some call the patriarchy works against us. And we always have to work a little harder and put a little effort and navigate things a little differently than people do, mm-hmm. you know, than a man does. Sorry. And then take it a, a notch above that, you know, the transgender community or, mm-hmm. you know, when you're queer and and you have a, or you're a woman of color like that intersection yeah. adds that extra layer of strife yeah. mm-hmm. that just makes it a little bit tougher. Yeah. And uh, so. I, I know I said this earlier, but Nate, I'm really happy to be here and, and just having this platform to talk about, uh, you know, woman's experience. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that you brought up intersectionality. Um, and I think that's such a crucial aspect to this conversation because, um, you know, I, I've been so fascinated by um, and this kind of leads into a whole other conversation. We could end up here for like six hours. I don't want to do that. Um, but. Shelly, you had a you had a teammate last year um, who's transgender and the, the first the very first um, out transgender yep. um, athlete, right? Yep. Absolutely. What was what was that like? <laughs> yeah. um, his name is Harrison Brown. Uh, he came out as openly transgender either this I think the season before he was a riveter, so mm-hmm. with the Buffalo Buttes, um, and f- I can't. I mean. As far as I can see and tell, like our league um, was very like welcomed in open arms, and um, he he's just a, a teammate. Yeah, <laughs> there yeah nothing, absolutely. I mean, I, I know that it, it creates questions in terms of like, um, I guess like so when you start taking testosterone when mm-hmm. not taking testosterone mm-hmm. and all yeah. those questions and those are beyond my sort of. Yeah. But um, I while not on any sort of hormone Mm -hmm. um if you want to identify as whatever you want to identify as Mm -hmm. um that then you um allow like then you play in our league as long as there's no i guess hormone but Uh, um just the normal i don't know he's cool he's great like he just uh, (laughs) but he's he's um retired now and has started to uh transition i guess physically so now it will not be playing but um is hoping to somehow stay involved in league and uh um just he teach people and help spread the word about yeah. like just all that he has gone through and, yeah. and help others. And he's such an inspiration. Um, I don't want to do like too many plugs on, on here, but um, anyone who's listening, who's uh, kind of dealing with uh, the frustration of being transgender in, in a very isolating kind of environment, um, Harrison Brown's YouTube channel. Mm, yeah. um, <laughs> I like I've, I've watched his channel and have been moved to tears. He's vulnerable. He shares so much. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah teammate. He's very he, like he does motivational speaking. Like, he's mm-hmm. very much like of helping one people who who have not come in contact with transgender people and just teaching mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, really just informing people, mm-hmm. but also people who are struggling with their identity and and feeling alone. Uh, he wants to make sure that they they don't feel alone. They know that other people are going through similar experiences, and so he's very um, uh, anyone who, who I'm, I'm speaking for him, but yeah. um, <laughs> he, he like reached. He's happy to talk and help. Yeah. And, uh, well, I think that's a really important point mm-hmm. to to think about for any group that's trying to break through, mm-hmm. that's trying to claim 
what is theirs, you know, in the culture, what should be theirs in the culture, to have those folks who are willing to be mentors, willing to share their stories, share their pains. And I think each of us as women around this circle, uh, we've all had those role models who have helped us imagine what's possible. You know, I think that was, you know, uh, Kelly, listening to your story about you know, being the good girl that stands in line. I mean, that is also my story as well. And certainly um, in the tradition where I was raised, that's what made sort of a girl or a woman acceptable mm-hmm. was that you were patient and accommodating and you waited your turn and you stood in line. And I remember when I when I uh, dared to say that I wanted to become a pastor, um, people who, you know, loved me and knew me the best were the ones that were most scandalized by this. You know, that wasn't what what nice, quiet girls did. You know, nice, quiet girls were were nuns or they were caregivers or maybe if they were really bold, they were theologians. But they kept it sort of out of that public sphere, right? And so um, it was seeing the um, few women who I knew and saw that were actually living out that sense of call with such integrity and such courage that I thought, you know, I can do this. It's not going to look like the male pastors in my life. It's not going to look like my uncle who's a Catholic priest, but it's going to look like my authentic call. And if it hadn't been for those folks who are willing to kind of be out there and do this, you know, on the cutting edge of women transgressing, and I use that word very intentionally, into territory that they've been told was not okay for them. I don't think I could have done it. So, you know, hats off to your teammate. That's a really brave and wonderful yeah. thing that he's doing. Yeah. He's pretty incredible. I kind of wanted to, to go into some specifics um, and talk about um, some ways that discrimination has manifested in your particular um, environment and uh, or your workplace or industry how do you combat these actions or circumstances um, and how do you engage with or educate men who want to help combat gender discrimination mm-hmm. or even men who don't give one one or two <laughs> shits about it <laughs> and i also want to add women too okay yeah, I think yeah sometimes absolutely. women are perpetuators internally internalized In- misogyny is real yeah it's real right yeah yeah um yeah, free for all. Let's just let's just converse about it. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm the most obvious one. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> we all turned and looked at you. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So it was literally baked into the doctrine. So let's just <laughs> let's just put that out there. Um, but you know, so often, you know, now now I, I am no longer Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. Although it's still in there and in all good ways. So I just want to you know clear that up. Um, but I do often from the odd you know, evangelical or fundamentalist or conservative Christian, I will sort of get the, you know, sort of who do you think you are? How do you think you can do this? Um, And usually they quote, Mm -hmm. you know, Paul's letter to to Timothy or the Ephesians and, you know, and some of those those quotes. And, you know, sometimes I just sort of take a deep breath and I'm like, how deep do you want to go in this? (laughs) Because it's so... um, it's so formative in the Western Christian religion that it's patriarchal. Yeah. God is male, therefore, and, and all of Jesus' apostles were male. So not only do I not have the legitimacy to be a pastor as a woman, um, you know, I really, I really shouldn't even be, be talking or teaching about this, you know, at all. It's kind of, it's kind of baked in. But I think what's really important, and if they're, if they're willing to give me the time, uh, I will talk to them 
about how I understand the scriptures and how really in progressive Christianity in general we understand the scriptures and and you know that as 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 humanity's quest for God. So it's a human collection of stories and letters and witnesses to that ancient community's experience of God. Mm-hmm. They're sacred for us because they continue to give us meaning and, and, and reflect our questions, but they're rooted and limited by the human communities that wrote them. Mm. So language is metaphorical. Language is limited. And when you are only trapped by uh, the imagination of the era, mm-hmm. you know, 1,200 years ago or so, uh, or 2,000 to, to 1,200 BCE, excuse me, um, you know, you're kind of stuck in a first century worldview. So I ask them, you know, do you really see that we should be living as first century, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Palestinians? Is that really how you see the worldview? And generally, no. Mm-hmm. You know, even as even as white, straight men know, you know, it's not, you know, our lives are all limited by that. So I think as thinking theologians, we need to understand that the words of Scripture have to live. And that means that they have to reflect a growing understanding of God, a growing understanding of the human condition. And that means a growing understanding of who women are and what our relationship is is with men. So there's a whole lot of theology you can go into yeah. about whether those letters of Paul are, are authentic, whether they're reflecting sort of yeah. an increasing uh, capitulation to the Roman Empire and the patriarchy of the empire. You know, but sometimes it's just exhausting to have to be justifying that kind of thing. Usually my sense of call or even my title is diminished and made diminutive. Um, by people who, who I run into, I'm often mistaken for I must be some kind of nun or I must at, at the very most be, they love to say that I must be the Christian ed director because that's what women do, right? Mm. So, so it's really interesting when I, when I do have an encounter with someone and I am senior minister and I am on their level in terms of um, my authority within my community. Um, but it is, it's, it's an exhausting experience. And I think one of the things as 21st century people we don't understand is that the ancient tradition of, of writing in the name of a teacher was very, very common. It didn't mean you were the teacher, but you were one of the teacher's disciples. And so, and, and I think the other thing that we don't realize is that, you know, these, these letters that Paul wrote were always very specific. There was a problem in the church in Ephesus. It was a problem in, in the church in Galatia, right? And Paul was writing to a specific specific problem within a context but we sort of universalize it mm-hmm. and we say well this is how we're supposed to be for all time and it, it, it that would be plagiarism but that, <laughs> he did not footnote you know he did not he did not get credit but i think one of the things that we do which which has been part of the challenge is that we look at ancient texts and therefore sort of the origins of, of ancient doctrine through 21st century mm-hmm. eyes and we don't realize the difference yeah and we don't recognize, you know, in, in my denomination, United Church of Christ, major plug for them, um, <laughs> our, 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 our slogan is really God is still speaking. Mm. And what we mean by that is that beyond the scriptures, yeah. beyond the doctrines, God is revealing herself through, mm. you know, through poetry, through scientific discovery, through breakthroughs in understanding about our humanity. Mm. That is sacred stuff. Yeah. And we can't shut the book and say that, you know, where the scriptures ended is where we have to end. Um, frankly, that's heretical. Mm. Heresy means a partial truth. That's a partial truth, mm-hmm. right? So it's heretical to think that that God stopped, you mm. know, at what humans could understand 2,000 years ago, 3,000 yeah. years ago. Yeah. So, but, 
you know, I have to tell you, very few folks I encounter that challenge my legitimacy really want a lesson mm, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in that, in scriptural sort of, you know, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's challenging. That, yeah, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, I know all of you can relate. Sure. It's exhausting to justify our existence in the professions where we are. It really is. But I also know it's the kind of work we have to do. It's small steps built on each other in solidarity with each, with each other that's ever going to make a change. You know, last night at the pub, you said something that just resonated with my soul. Was you said, I'm just tired. I'm tired. And I, and you said it within a context that was like, wow, I'm, this is what social justice fatigue feels like. <laughs> Yeah, maybe more tired this year than yeah. in years past. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. then, right. we're I completely know. justified <laughs> for our exhaustion. Yeah. But it's like we're we're fighting this narrative since, and you've heard from Kelly and our stories that we've been in this fight for a while, and it's just never ending. And it's we're still. Nate, do you want to go over the pay inequity? Yeah, because I, ju- yeah, I was just about <laughs> yeah. to say, um, buckle so your seatbelts because yeah. it's going to get a little worse. <laughs> um, so, Shelly, you, you shared a story last night um, about – now, I know you're not uh, – you weren't involved directly um, with what took place. But um, the just kind of by way of introduction, um, uh, 2017 – the U.S. women's hockey team uh, got the governing body, USA Hockey, to agree to similar arrangements for women that uh, the same, uh, well, similar arrangements that the men had as far as like insurance and travel and so so on. Um, like like I mentioned, you weren't directly involved in all of that, but you were on the national team in 2014, so you're kind of connected to to that story. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that? And um, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was still in, so this was talked about this and the older players on our team like huge shout out to them um sort of monique lamru jocelyn lamru megan duggan hillary knight like the, the people who had been in the program uh for a while really spearheaded this and uh in i believe it was 2016 which was sort of my last year really fully with the national team um there had been these talks about what was going to go on and trying to get uh, equity between the men's U.S. national team and, and women's na- uh, U.S. national team um, because there's just huge discrepancies between um, stipends for how much how much you're getting uh, paid and um, hotel accommodations and appearances and number of games and um, and there were ju- junior boys who are 18, 19, 20, 20, 20 years old getting paid more, getting better accommodations and more games than the top women in, in the country who are playing. Um, and so just just absurd really um Mm. and so there was this sort of movement that that started and all culminated with a boycott of the of the world or almost boycott of the world championships in in 2017 yeah Yeah. because uh after about a year of just trying to negotiate behind the scenes and keep it quiet and and keep this united front um things weren't happening and so they led to a boycott and uh the u.s national team players uh weren't going to play in the world championships um and so the U.S. USA Hockey didn't have a team, and it's the the World Champions are going to be on U.S. soil, and so this mm-hmm. was a huge deal. And at first, the U.S. the kind of governing body uh, tried to replace these players with sort of the se- second rate, and then third rate, <laughs> and then fourth rate. But uh, women stood together, and and they did, wouldn't have been able to field the team. And eventually, um, 
the the voices were heard and an agreement was made and the women ended up playing in those world championships winning and then now won the gold medal at the 2018 so (laughs) just a huge win all around for sure quick interjection i was screaming the the worst part about the olympics was like yeah 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 and but like i was oh late at night yeah you know the the next day at work was brutal but oh my god <laughs> worth I, it right yeah, oh, so absolutely worth it. <laughs> worth it crying like watching everybody go nuts oh it was it was beautiful uh and what a great end to that story mm-hmm. absolutely um, that that was a landmark decision for USA hockey to even uh consider which it's ridiculous that we have to say landmark decision mm-hmm. uh, cuz it really should just be common sense right i mean i know i'm i'm kind of speaking from from an observational standpoint but um, it certainly was a landmark decision. Do you see um, any areas for improvement at all, though? Because I feel like there really there should be um, even further steps that, that can be taken, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I will see. Hopefully, that things fall through now that the Olympics are over, and, and there's now, unfortunately, after the Olympics, there's sort of a like a, a, a lag or a letdown in sort yeah. of the the hype and everything. And so, hopefully, there's a follow through from USA Hockey, um, and that's yet to be seen. So, yeah. fingers crossed that, that, that yeah. things stay stay on the right track. Um, but in my opinion, um, I think more needs to be done keeping girls uh, in the game. And I mean, athletics in general, but mm-hmm. especially more male sports like ice hockey yeah. or football, yeah. um, uh, keeping them in the game as they get older yeah. just because we lose so many. And so I, I don't know what that could look like, yeah. but at least putting some resources and some time and thought and like, how do we keep girls uh, playing the game? Mm-hmm. Because um, it's fantastic and it opens many yeah. doors and it's just amazing and, and, and a great sport. And Here so... Uh, what can we do when when um, sort of the world is sort of saying like you're not meant to be playing ice yeah. hockey, but there's got to be a way that we can we can kind of create a different story, yeah. different narrative. Shelley, you talked a little bit last night about uh, why girls don't play, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and why persistence in sports kind of drops at a certain rate. You shared last night a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, um, especially when you're. I guess I talked last night about um, being my experience of being in high school and um, when I started having these, you know, when I wanted to play college hockey, that means you have to be in the weight room and you have to be training. And so um, I'd be in the weight room doing my thing and and amongst uh, with the weights was just all boys. And I'd see the girls were at the treadmill. And as I said, nothing wrong with that. But it's just that there was no other girl with me. Um, And so I, I luckily... I don't know why or whatever. I was just in my own little bubble. Like, yeah, I'm just lifting weights. I don't care. Like, I, I just, I didn't really notice. But I can see now how that could be really um, disheartening for girls. And um, maybe uh, there's something wrong with me or I'm weird or I don't. Mm-hmm. There's also a body image thing where you see all these images of really slender, like, toned women, I think is, like, the, the word that they like to use rather than necessarily strong. But, um, and so there's just not wanting to look like that. And so, therefore, you can't become this more elite athlete. But there's also... There's uh, so complicated in terms of, but there's also athletes who don't look that way, but are incredibly strong. And so it's like, and then there's the question of how legit are they if they don't look this way. And so it's like, it's like, it's a loose, in some ways a lose-lose. Because if you're too strong, then you're not feminine enough. But if you look too feminine, then you must not be a legitimate athlete. And so it's just like, uh, I'm just not going to play because then I don't have to deal with all this. (laughs) Exhaustion, um, right? Just exhaustion. Yeah. Yeah, Um, Tired. Just plain tired. So, um, but I don't know, maybe just be the, the circle I was in, I just kind of had this own little bubble yeah. and, and stuck with it. But yeah. I can definitely see how that can prevent girls from playing. Yeah. yeah. 
And, and like, so you and I coached together, and and something you mentioned last night that I was thinking about, and really it was it was sitting in my mind for almost the entire night. Um, at the U8 level, we've got tons of girls mm-hmm. playing, and U12, a f- you know, significantly smaller mm-hmm. number, and then U14s even less, and U18s forget it, mm-hmm. just a handful right. left. Right. So. Yeah. I think that goes into what we were just talking about. And I, someone, and I'm grateful that you sort of brought it up, was like, well, could that just be interest? Like, mm. maybe they have different interests in other sports and other and all that. Which, yes, can play a part of that. Mm-hmm. But um, there's then you, there's got to be a way of keeping girls playing yeah. ice hockey. And um, and part of it is, like, I hear girls, like, at a, they're 12. I'm like, oh, my hair is going to be all messy afterwards. <laughs> like, you'll fix it later it's fine or like i'm afraid to fall or i'm afraid to get hurt and it's and so there's a price that they would have to pay to continue forward Mm. i think we talked about that well yeah yeah, so like what's what's the gain for a girl to continue playing at a young age right like if you're a male jock in high school, mm-hmm. y- you oh. said you said it last night, Shelly. Like you're Mister Popular. That's right. You get the girls. Mm-hmm. You so w- what does the girl get as the female athlete? Right. Right. You know, as the cheerleader. You know, you're you're pretty. You're cute. You're spunky. Yeah. You're attractive. You know, there's so and that I think boils down to my main point last night. It's like, sort of what is woman's value mm. in society. What is she most valued for? Is it her, um, you know, getting married? What what are when we praise women and their successes? What are we praising? What are, you know, what do you get points for? You know, <laughs> and right. do you get points for you know being strong, mm-hmm. for being smart, the smart Alec in your class, for being a scientist, for you know? So I think at the end of the day, when we're kind of breaking, forget you know, breaking barriers and breaking, shattering ceilings, you know, we have to navigate this labyrinth um, that's a little bit harder into leadership or into uh, spaces that are predominantly, you know, male dominated. And it's harder to thrive there because you just, there's so few like you. Mm, Right. And and it's not praised in the same way that it is for a man to be a leader, for a man to be strong, for Mm -hmm. a man to be, um, you know, athletic. As it, as, as it is for a woman. Well, that is all the time we have for this week. Come back next week to hear the end of our conversation. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Rate and review us on iTunes. And be sure to swing by DontRepeatThisPodcast.com. You can send us messages there, leave comments on episodes, and even drop us a voicemail by clicking the blue microphone in the bottom right corner of the screen. And who knows, we might even play your message on a future episode, with your permission, of course. And be sure to hit us up on social media as well. We'd love to get your thoughts and feedback on the show. We're at Don't Repeat This Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and at Don't Repeat Pod on Twitter. Once again, on behalf of my co-hosts, Gail and Vicky, I'm Nate, and this has been Don't Repeat This, so maybe don't repeat this stuff at the dinner table.